Wednesday. Would you stand with me and worship? We're gonna do a favorite around here. Who am I that the highest king would welcome? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Let's take it out tonight. Who the
We're going to choose to lift him up tonight because we are children of the King and he is worthy of that praise. Will you sing this out? That I count on one thing, the same God who never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now. And in the waiting, the same God who's never late is working all things out. He's working all things out. So yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will bless your name.
That's wonderful. Y'all can have a seat. Welcome to First Wednesday. I'm so glad that you're here. This may be a new experience for you. Maybe you're here for the first time for First Wednesday, and uh, we just want you to know that we're so glad that you're here. Sort of a special, almost a just a very intimate family time for us as a church where we come together and celebrate God and what he's doing here in this place. And uh, so together we're going to be receiving communion here in just a minute. I want to let you know if, uh, if you don't feel comfortable participating in that, please feel no pressure from us. We would never want you to feel that. But on the other hand, um, some of you may have been in a church where it was understood that if you didn't belong to that specific church where you couldn't participate in communion with them, that's really kind of not how it works for us. If you're here in this room and you follow God, we're going to adopt you as one of us tonight. Um, We would love for you to celebrate with us tonight in the Lord's Supper. I was sitting over there, Austin, I was thinking to myself about being in San Francisco last year. I was at a conference and um, I was riding the train. How many of you have seen the BART, the Bay Area Rancid, uh, Rapid Transit? I almost said it correctly. I almost said Rancid. But, um, <laughs> it's the train that you get on to go from one place to another. And, and uh, I tried not to make eye contact, honestly, because I'm just a Midwestern boy and don't know any of how things go out there. But this one guy sat down next to me and we got into a conversation. I had to go from one side of San Francisco to the other, so I was going to be on the train for a little while. Another Christian, he said, you know, he said, uh, my journey's been really special. I'm listening to him talk about it. And he talked about being in foster care and then being adopted. And he said, I always felt a stronger connection to my adopted parents than to my biological parent. And I said, well, I think that's to be expected. And he said, no, there's a special reason why. He said, uh, my foster parents who became my adoptive parents, they knew me. They knew what a mess I was. They knew what kind of trouble I tended to get into. They understood all the drawbacks of having me as part of their family, and yet they wanted me anyway. You know, the Bible says that you and I are adopted members of God's family. When we talk about the cross, what we're talking about is a, a method of adoption. That's what it took for Jesus to bring us into God's family. And that means that when he saw Jonathan, he understood the mess he was going to be, the problem that I am, all the mess-ups that I make, my bad days, my bad choices, my bad decisions, my bad moods, all that stuff. He understood. And yet for some weird reason, the God of the universe still wanted me in his family. Now, why, why do we get so celebratory about such an awful moment in history? You have Jesus on the cross dying this terrible death. Why do people in church get so amped up about this terrible moment? Well, it was a terrible thing, but you have to understand what's going on behind the scenes is that God is bringing us into his family. He's adopting us, and he's paying for the things that we've done wrong in the past, the things that we're doing wrong right now, the things we'll do wrong in the future. And it was what he did because he wanted to do it. The Bible says it was joy that was set before him. The cross was the joy that was set before him. Why was it joy? Well, it was because he wanted a big family, and it was the way that he made that happen. So tonight we're celebrating the fact that Jesus loves us and that he was willing to do whatever it took. If it meant lying down on a cross and letting mean old men stick spikes through his hands, if that's what it meant, then that's what he was going to do. If it meant being whipped to the point that he didn't even look like a human being anymore, then that's what he was going to do. If it meant being there naked and embarrassed for six hours on a attached to a splintery old piece of wood, fighting for breath for six hours. That's what it meant. That's what he was going to do. 
So I want you to think about in this moment, that's, that's what he was willing to do for you because he loves you that much. So tonight, as we participate in this, we examine our, we examine our hearts and we say, God, am I right with you? Is my heart aligned with your heart? Am I following you as best I know how? And in this moment, we celebrate that it was nothing less than the broken body and blood of Jesus Christ that was required for us to have a future in heaven and a relationship with God. Austin's gonna sing and lead us in a song and our wonderful guest services team is gonna come and they're gonna pass out the the elements. I'm gonna ask you, would you do me a favor? When you receive the bread and the juice, would you hang on to it for a second? Because we'll all take it together. You can go ahead and feel free to peel the top of the juice off, that's fine, but uh, hang on to it for a minute and then we'll all take it together. I'm gonna pray and then our guest services folks will come and Austin will begin to sing. Father, you are amazing. We can't get into the the thoughts and the mind that you have that would wanna reach out to a broken, fallen human race like us and see the value that you see in us. But we're gonna trust you that you see that value. And we're gonna trust you that tonight it made you happy to do what you did to bring us into your family. Now, in this moment, we do celebrate the fact that Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled so that we could have a relationship with you. Help us to never take it for granted. Help us to always remember it's a big deal you wanted us in your family. Thank you for that sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.
Hold on to that thought. We're coming back there for a second. Well, the Bible says they did eat and they did drink. I ask you to stand with me for a minute. I'll tell you about this in a minute, but I had a sermon all written for tonight. Outline, everything is just perfect. I was so excited. Sunday's talk done, Wednesday's talk done. And God just would not let me preach that sermon tonight. Wouldn't do it. And uh, in a minute, I'm going to bring a talk for those of you in here that feel like you're kind of on your last nerve. I'm going to bring a talk for those of you who are feeling like you've pushed too hard and now you're worn out. You don't know what to do. You're starting to feel burnout. You're starting to feel exhausted. And you came here tonight because you were hoping there would be some hope. You were hoping there would be something you could grab onto. Well, that's what we're going to do tonight, but I'm going to ask you to go back to that verse that says, it soothes my doubts and calms my fears. And we're going to sing with you because that's what tonight's all about. Will you sing that with us? Yes, it soothes my doubts and calms my It will reach there. Will you sing this out? Yes, and it reaches to the highest mountain. Just let that sink in. And it flows to the lowest valley. Anyone in a valley tonight? 
that very blood that keeps me strength from day to day. Oh, remember this. It will never lose its power. Amen. Speak to me when the silence steals my voice. You understand me. You understand me And come to me In the valley of unknowns You understand me You understand me You understand me, God You understand me So I throw
doubts and fears don't scare you Cause you're bigger than I thought you were You're bigger than I thought And I'll stop all negotiations With the God of all creation Cause you're bigger than I thought you were You're bigger than I thought you were uh, So you can tell I'm wearing my official Judgment House t-shirt, right? How many of you have been involved at some time before with Judgment House? Look around, everybody. Is this not amazing? So I recognize I'm talking to my core Judgment House audience right now. Uh, I say that because volunteer slots are now available for you to sign up tonight. Tonight is the beginning of Judgment House sign-up. Um, and it takes an awful lot of volunteers to do Judgment House. However, I will tell you that I don't know of anything where you will see the power of God concentrated in a tiny little area the way that you'll see it when you come and you volunteer in Judgment House. You will see the power of God concentrated in this corner of K96 and 21st Street in a way that you might never have imagined. And uh, this will be my ninth Judgment House to be a part of. And I'll tell you that every year it's a highlight for me. I look forward to it every year. So if you sign up and volunteer, I will see you there because uh, I will be with you uh, on Judgment House. I love getting to be a part of that. And uh, we're expecting God to do exceedingly abundantly more than we might ask or think. The thing about it is God keeps blowing the lid off of all of our expectations every year at Judgment House. And so we've given up knowing what to expect. We leave it wide open to God and say, God, do whatever you're going to do on this property. And uh, so please, please, even if you're not thinking about being part of Judgment House, all I'm asking you to do is to pray about it and ask God whether or not he would have you be a part of that. And then the other thing I'm going to ask you to do is this. It's August. Um, October is not that far around the corner. Would you do this? Would you include Judgment House in your prayer life? As you go to God and you talk to God about what's going on in your life, would you just talk to God about Judgment House? And the reason that I ask you is this. Um, for those of you who volunteered before, you understand, and we're going to talk a little bit about this in a minute, that if you do something for God, what you've just done is painted a massive target on yourself for Satan to come after. Satan does not like it when people are actually uh, getting traction in this world and doing something for God. So I can vouch for this. Volunteers, staff, all of us are under Satan's attack during those two weeks of Judgment House. We are right in the middle of the crosshairs. So if you do nothing else, I'm going to ask that you pray for those who are going to be involved in Judgment House, that God would protect their families, God would protect um, every area of their life, really, and help pave a smooth road for them to participate and be a part of this. So anyhow, Judgment House is near and dear to my heart. I hope you can tell that. And, and in the days ahead, we're going to really look forward to seeing what God is going to do. Well, I said earlier, I had a talk ready for tonight. I had a nice outline. Um, and that's pretty much all I ever have is an outline, but I had an outline put together. My wife and I are moving next week. Um, and uh, so our house right now is full of boxes. You know how it is, right? If you ever experienced this, it's like now our, our house is like a box maze. Um, and uh, so I thought I would come on stage and I would bring a cardboard box and I would bring a talk about the fact that you can't move and stay. Uh, which is not a bad, not a bad title. We're going to talk about the fact that if God is calling you to something new, you can't take where you're, uh, where you've been with you. And we're going to talk about three things that you can't take uh, if you're, if you're going to actually move. Unfortunately, I did not feel the liberty to bring that talk tonight. 
And I feel so strongly that God pushed me in this direction that I, I have a real sense that there are people in this room that God is trying to speak to tonight where you really feel that you are fraying at the ends. You really feel that you've pushed it too hard for too long and you've hit that burnout point. Maybe you hit that burnout point a long time ago and you're wondering whether or not life will ever be the same for you, whether you'll ever feel the passion in life and, um, and the connection and attraction that you once did. So I wanna bring a talk tonight called When God Won't Accept Your Resignation because there was a person in the Bible that got burnout and he tried to resign, he tried to quit, he tried to tell God he was done and God wouldn't accept his resignation. We're gonna talk a little bit about that. Maybe on the road to doing that, we'll help reconnect you with your purpose and you'll walk out of here tonight feeling re-energized and ready to take on the battles of life that you've been fighting. Burnout is a topic that I spend a lot of time on. Um, anybody who knows me personally knows that burnout and, and or, or we could say emotional exhaustion or we could call it nervous breakdown, whatever. People who know me really well know that this is my pet project. Um, as somebody who's been a student of, of psychology now for what nine years, um, this is always what I want to study. I always want to study this, and the reason is because it connects with a personal experience I had that was very, uh, very hard to deal with. My dad's gotten up here many, many times and talked about his sort of emotional and physical crisis that he had about nine years ago. And the only, the only words I can think of to really describe what it was like, it was almost like a nervous breakdown, but, but we could certainly... We could certainly maybe use the word burnout for it, but it was, it was something like I'd never seen before. And you have to understand, when this happened, I'd been on staff at New Spring for five months, six months. Um, so I was still a newbie and uh, wasn't even 30 yet at the time. And uh, it was a crazy experience. My dad had always been the rock. Everybody relied on my dad. My dad was always the adult in the room, always, always, without exception. People always looked to my dad because he was the one who had the answers and he was the one who was emotionally stable and steady. And that wasn't just at work, that was at home too. I mean, he was just, he was absolutely steady on his feet all the time, emotionally, right down the center. I remember he had, I'd found out that he wasn't doing well I didn't get to talk to him before he left initially. And he was on a trip and went and spoke with a pastor in Georgia who's now become one of his best friends. But that was a short trip. He came back. It was really just coming back for a day or so before he was going to take another trip to try to get some more help. This was the first time I would see him in person in the middle of all this. I remember driving over to their house in Andover. It's a different place than where they live now. But I drove over to their house in Andover and I went and sat down in the living room and the dad that I was talking to was not the person that I normally knew. It was completely different. I mean, I cannot tell you how disorienting it was. It was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And it was so different that I promised myself, once we got past that, I would try to figure out what in the world this was. I'm, I'm one of those people who just, I need, I, I need answers. And as, as soon as we got through that, I decided I was going to really devote a lot of my energy to understanding what all that was about. Well, it's been about nine years, and I'm still learning all the time about this. But I will tell you this. Tonight, I'm going to tell you some of the things that I would have incorporated to try to help my dad nine years ago if I'd known better. If I'd known how to maybe deal with the situation better. 
I would have brought into that situation some of the things I'm going to tell you tonight. So this won't be my typical talk in that I don't have a lot of funny stuff to talk about because this is just not funny. It's not funny when we hit the wall. It's not funny when we get burnt out, when we're exhausted. But the Bible does have some information for us to help us cope in those moments. The guy I want to talk to you about tonight is Elijah, the prophet. He's in the Old Testament. Elijah, the role of a prophet was different than the role of a priest. The priest's job was to take people's messages to God. The prophet's job was to take God's messages to people. The prophet was the preacher. He would get a message from God and he would go preach to the people. Elijah, fortunately or unfortunately, I guess it's unfortunately in terms of his stress load, Elijah was called to be a preacher at a really rough time. Because the king who was on the throne in Israel at the time that Elijah was a prophet, the Bible told us he was the most wicked king that ever lived. And on top of that, he had a wife. The, the, king, the queen was a mess. Her name was Jezebel. And you know, we don't exactly name our daughters Jezebel, do we? You know, there's, there's just such a bad history attached there. None of us want to go there. And uh, so Elijah had to be the prophet during the time that Ahab, the worst king ever, and Jezebel, the worst queen ever, are on the throne. And they had a particular problem. And that was that when Jezebel became the queen, she brought idol worship with her. And we talk about idol worship. We're just talking about worshiping a fake god. And in this case, the fake god that she brought with her was particularly powerful. She brought a fake god with her called Baal. Now, you should know that in these days, that when people would worship idols, they would create a god that was of something. This is the God of crops, the God of rain, the God of uh, sun. And they would pray to whichever God was appropriate for whatever it was that they felt that they needed. But Baal was the God of sex and prosperity. I think if we want to compare where we are in 2019 America with any point in the Old Testament, I think we're zoning in right to about the right spot because there never was a time, I think, where we are so much turning loose of the God of the universe and taking hold of sex and prosperity. This is exactly what was happening in Israel. Jezebel um, understood that there was, there was quite a few people that still worship the true God, worship Yahweh, um, and she didn't want any trouble with those people, not because she was afraid to fight them, she just didn't want the inconvenience. So what she did was she put 450 preachers on her payroll, 400 and pro, 450 prophets of Baal. She felt like if Yahweh had a prophet, she was gonna way outnumber him. She, she got 400, and she started the first seminary of Jezebel and had 450 preachers rubber stamp to be prophets of Baal. And what she had them teaching was that you could have both. If you want to serve you know, Yahweh, you can serve him, but you can also serve Baal too. You can have both at the same time, which by the way, we've got a religion right now, uh, the, the religion of the United States that basically says you can have both. You can have God and you can have, follow the God of sex and prosperity. You can have it all. And that's exactly what was, what was being taught. And God wanted... God wanted his prophet. He wanted Elijah to make sure that everybody understood that it doesn't work that way. You cannot be, you, you, there's going to be some discriminating when it comes to God. You're going to have to pick one God and you're going to have to not pick another. And so he said, look, you're going you're gonna to have to make up your mind. And that was pretty much Elijah's life. Elijah's life was pretty much telling the people they were going to have to pick what was going to be God. 
So the story that we're going to talk about comes on the heels of three major victories for Elijah. And I just want to run through those really quickly. So keep in mind, Elijah's job is to tell the people of Israel, you got to pick a God. So there comes this massive showdown of Elijah and these 450 prophets of Baal. They all gather together on a mountain. All the people of Israel there kind of coming in as spectators, looking around and watching. And the prophets of Baal and Elijah come to an agreement. We're going to both pray that God will send down fire from heaven. And whomever, whichever God sends down fire from heaven, then that's obviously God. There's a demonstration of power. And everybody agreed, even the people who are watching said, yep, that sounds good to us. That'll be a show of God's power. And so the Baal guys get to go first. 450 prophets spend the whole day goofing, goofing off, doing... I mean, eventually they get real serious. They start dancing and singing and cutting themselves. Anything they can do to get their God's attention, nothing ever happens. And then Elijah wants to make sure that everybody's real clear on the fact that this was no mistake. So Elijah actually has them dumping buckets of water on the sacrifice where the fire is supposed to come down. Now, I'm not really great at science or physics, but I do understand that if you want something to catch fire, dousing it with water is probably not a great idea. But the Bible says that when Elijah prayed, and he prayed a very short prayer, the Bible says that fire came down from heaven that was so intense that it consumed the sacrifice, the wood on the sacrifice, the stones. I mean, think about, this is a major fire if it's going to consume stones. It consumed the water that had filled the trench around that altar and even the dust around the trench. I mean, we're talking about major, major explosion of fire that came from heaven after Elijah prayed a short prayer. Well, that's one major victory. And because of that, the people turned against the prophets of Baal, and Elijah and those people that were there killed 450 prophets of Baal. So now Jezebel's got no recent graduates of the seminary. They're all gone, right? That's a major victory. And according to the people, they're going to follow the real God now. Well, on top of all that, there had been this really long drought in Israel That God had said, I'm not going to let it rain. Uh, We'll give you notice when it's time to rain again. And Elijah had already given Ahab notice it was going to rain. And the Bible says that there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Elijah began to pray and a little tiny cloud showed up. And before long, a massive storm came up. And he'd warned Ahab. He said, man, you better get back to Israel because big old rainstorm's coming up. And the king was sort of laughing at him. And all of a sudden, here comes this rainstorm. So now Ahab's trying to hightail it back to Jezreel. Well, in the middle of all this, think about this. Ahab's headed back. Now think about all of what God has just done. He's consumed the sacrifice. He's sent down fire from heaven. Now it's raining because God said it's going to rain, and now it has happened. What happens if Ahab gets back first? Well, he'll just spin the story his way. He'll find a way to explain it to everybody so that Elijah's thunder will be stolen. No, no pun intended. Elijah's going to get there. He's not going to be able to, he's not going to be able to prove to the people that this was God that did it because Ahab will spin it. So the Bible tells us that Elijah was given special power from God to run ahead of Ahab's chariot. So Ahab's got the Ferrari of the time. He's, you know, hightailing it for Israel. And Elijah actually outran the chariot to get to Jezreel. Those are three major victories. Called down fire from heaven, called down rain from heaven. Now he's run ahead of Ahab's chariot, and he gets to Jezreel. You would think that here is a man on top of his game. I mean, when would you imagine ever feeling the, I don't know, the, the, the electricity of success the way that he would at that time? And I mean, think about this. This is a pretty major deal to the people in Jezreel. Everybody's, they've got, now God's got all their attention because God had kept rain from falling. That would be like if God kept all of our electricity off for several months and then all of a sudden God says, all right, the electricity is going to come back on and bam, it's back on. 
I mean, this is a big deal. And Elijah's there, and Elijah's preaching about God, but then he snaps. Over the years now, I've talked to a lot of people who've had major burnout moments, emotional collapse, nervous breakdown, whatever you want to call it, and all, almost all of them can take you to the place and the time when it snapped. They, they don't know why, usually, but they know that there was a moment where the last straw finally hit. They're not really sure why that was the last straw. They just know that it was at this place, at this time, it snapped, and I wasn't the same. And it's exactly what happens for Elijah. Ahab gets home and he says to Jezebel, he tells, he tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. So keep this in mind. This is a threat, right? She didn't send an assassin, she sent a messenger. And the messenger says, you're going to be dead by this time tomorrow. You have to understand, you know, there's so much to Elijah's story, so much that we haven't gone through here. But Elijah is not unaccustomed to being threatened by Ahab and Jezebel. I mean, Ahab and Jezebel are mean, bad people. He understands that Ahab and Jezebel would just as soon him not be on the planet. That's not news. It's not news that, that, that killing the prophets of Baal was going to get Jezebel really upset. Shouldn't have been news to him that she was going to threaten his life. But there was something inside that snapped. It was that moment where for some reason it was the last straw. It was too much. The Bible says as a result, Elijah was afraid and he fled for his life. I cannot tell you how unlike Elijah that is. I cannot tell you how absolutely that is 180 to everything we have ever heard about Elijah before. Elijah's been fearless so far. Just as I sat in that living room and talked to my dad, who'd always been the adult in the room, and in that moment, all of us were trying to console him, and none of us could, none of us could quite manage to do it. It's that complete turnaround. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. Well, if you know your Bible, you know that Israel at one point split into a northern and a southern kingdom. Ahab and Jezebel are in the northern kingdom. Beersheba is in the southern tip of the southern kingdom. So Elijah went through Judah, went to the southern tip of Judah, told his servant to stay there, and for all intents and purposes, he left Judah. He left Israel proper. He left the whole country out into the wilderness. He's alone, and he's as far from home as you can imagine. He doesn't even want to be he doesn't want to be in Israel. He doesn't want to be in Judah. He doesn't want to be anywhere. I'm talking to somebody in this room. You're so burnt out. You don't want to be home. You don't want to be at work. You don't want to be anywhere. Well, if that's how you feel, that's how Elijah was. He was, he was to where he wasn't comfortable anywhere. So he went out into the wilderness. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might die. And this is his, and by the way, what you're getting ready to hear is the word track of burnout. I have had enough. This is too much. It's more than I can handle. And then he says, I'm no better than my ancestors who have already died. The second part of, of burnout that's kind of the word track for burnout is I've made no difference. Nothing that I've done has really been that important. Nothing that I've done has really succeeded. One of the biggest things that all of us stood around my dad and we were just perplexed was that my dad was telling us that he didn't think he had accomplished anything. And I'm standing there, and there was a, a member of the board who happened to be there at the time. I think he's here in the... I, yes, I see him here in the room tonight. He was there. My mother was there. 
People who cared deeply about my dad were there, and we were all just shaking our heads like, is this even possible? That he's saying he doesn't think that God has used him, he doesn't think that he's accomplished anything? It was the craziest thing ever. But you know what burnout will do to you? Burnout will make you think that you've never accomplished anything and that what you have accomplished doesn't matter. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree, but as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again, touched him, and said, Get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. This is not my talk tonight. But I do want to mention it. You know, the Bible says the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Some of us aren't taking care of our bodies. I'm first, I'm first in line there. I'm going through a season in my life where I've not been as focused as I should in taking care of myself. But just so that we're all aware, if you want to live out what God has called you to do, you're going to have to take care of yourself. Part of that means that you need to sleep at night. Part of that means that you need to make sure that you eat healthy. Part of it means that you need to exercise on a regular basis. God has called us to take care of our bodies. But you know what Elijah had been doing? He'd been taking care of business, but he wasn't taking care of his body. And so I think it's interesting, and like I said, it's not my talk tonight, but I think it's interesting that the first thing that God did with Elijah was address his physical health. He needed to eat and he needed to sleep. Some of us in this room... The way that we eat and the way that we sleep are things that we keep at the back of our mind and we don't even think about it because we figure we got a lot more stuff to worry about. We got a lot bigger stuff on our plate. I just want to tell you, if the angel of the Lord made Elijah eat and sleep, well, that might be something for us to think about. So the Bible says, then he came to a cave where he spent the night, but the Lord said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? All right, what an interesting question, <laughs> right? You basically left, you, you, you've left Israel proper, you're not, this was on the heels of so many victories that God had given him. Now he's off the path. He's out here in the wilderness praying for God to kill him. And Elijah said, and God says to Elijah, what are you doing here? But the good thing for Elijah was he'd prepared a speech. How do I know he'd prepared a speech? Because he says it more than once. He has this right down to a word track. He says, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That was his speech. You're going to see that he gave it to God more than once. So he said, you might as well kill me, God. I haven't accomplished anything. I'm the only guy left. They're going to kill me. It's a total waste of time. So God said, go out and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. Now, now I'm going to go through the rest of the passage, and then we're going to make some observations, so hang with me. But I want you to watch what happens. A mighty windstorm comes, hits the mountains. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose. I mean, this is a Kansas tornado. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? God was in a still small voice. So Elijah has his speech. He replied again, I've zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Do you see what I mean? The speech is 
verbatim. He had this all planned. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came. God gave him a lot of instructions, but the first instruction, and the most important one, was go back the way you came. I'm going to spend the rest of our talk tonight on go back the way that you came. What, what was this business with the tornado and the, the fire and the earthquake and all that stuff? Because I've heard preachers talk about that all the time, the symbolism of it and stuff. Well, this is my promise to you. By the time we're done tonight, I'm going to share with you why God wasn't in the earthquake, why God wasn't in the tornado, why God wasn't in the firestorm, but why God was in the still small voice. We're going to talk about that. But before we get there, I want to talk to you about the way Elijah came. God said, "Come, go, go back the way that you came. Well, that could have been a geographic piece of advice. Go back towards Israel. I think there was probably truth to that at some point because God's going to give him some instructions to do once he kind of goes back geographically. But the other thing that we have to recognize is that Elijah got where he was because of a path he had taken emotionally. Elijah got there because of a path that he had taken in his thoughts. And in the time that we have left, I want to talk to you about the path that Elijah took that got him there and how we can backtrack and go back the way that he came. Here's, here's three statements. I'm going to give you this. This is the path. I'm just going to give you these rapid fire, and then we're going to look at each of them in turn. This is the emotional path he took. First, he decided he wasn't making a difference. He looked at a situation, and he said, you know, if I was actually being successful, we'd be accomplishing more here. If I was really successful, things would be better than they are. But he looked around and felt like he wasn't making a difference. After that, he decided he needed to be alone. Well, since I'm not making a difference, I need to be by myself. I need... Let me tell you what, one of the biggest problems with burnout is that when we get burned out, we isolate, and it is at that moment more than any other time that we need other people. And we tend to turn our ears off to what other people are trying to tell us, and we tend to tune out when we should be tuning in. And then finally, he said, I'm finished. God, it's enough. Let me die. I got no more use, right? What do we do with a burnout light bulb? Throw it away. Some of us think that the moment that we start to feel burnout, God should just give up on us because we're giving up on ourselves. Well, I just want to look at those three things. If God said, go back the same way you came, and if I'm talking to somebody in this room who feels any of those things, I'm not accomplishing anything, I need to be alone, I'm finished. Well, let's talk about those because I think that's what God wanted Elijah to backtrack on a little bit. That first statement, I'm not making a difference. I want, you to show, I want to show you what Jezebel did. Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. <clears throat> if Jezebel had wanted to kill Elijah, trust me, she would have sent an assassin and not a messenger. If she had really wanted to take Elijah out, she just would have sent somebody to kill him. She didn't want to kill him. Listen, listen. She didn't want to kill him. She wanted to threaten him to get him out of there. She wanted to scare him. The problem is, there were too many people who watched her prophets of Baal get killed. There were too many people who saw the fire of God come down from heaven. There were too many people, too many people that understood that there was a promise from God for rain, and then rain happened. So she understood that if, if the moment Elijah got back to town, she killed him. She understood she was going to have a riot on her hands. 
So instead of sending out an assassin, she sends a messenger. She ain't going to kill him. She just wants to make him think she's going to kill him because if she can make him think she's going to kill him, then maybe he'll get scared and run off, which is exactly what he did. Can I give you this? Maybe, maybe if, if you don't pick up anything else from tonight, this may be the most important thing for you to pick up. And that is this, that Satan only threatens those who threaten him. So often we're anxious and we're scared about what, what's going to happen. I, I don't understand. I can't figure out why my family situation isn't what it needs to be. I can't figure out why I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere at work. I don't know why I don't feel like I'm accomplishing anything. We feel threatened that we're going to be a failure or that we are a failure. But keep in mind that Satan only threatens people who threaten him. It's when we are doing what God has called us to do that Satan paints a big red target on us. Listen, there was, there's no doubt in my mind that it makes perfect sense that as New Spring was going through its greatest season of growth, it was at that moment that my dad had his experience with burnout. Absolutely no doubt in my mind that it was, a, that it was a, why? Because when we're experiencing the greatest season of our success in God, that is when Satan paints the biggest target on us. Don't think it's a mistake that it's after three major successes with Elijah that this happens. Satan only threatens those who threaten him. And by the way, for whatever it's worth, God is gonna say later, he's gonna tell Elijah, by the way, I just want you to know, I'm gonna preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. He's like, I get that you feel like you're the only one I get that you feel like nobody else is a true follower of God, and it's just you. You're so alone in this. There's nobody else. He's like, but just in case you were wondering, there's at least 7,000 people in Israel who've never crossed that line with Baal, never worshipped Baal, never gone to the temple and kissed the statue. 7,000 people who have stayed devoted and dedicated to me. You don't know about them because because I've never had them show up on your doorstep, but they exist. And by the way, your ministry has been part of that. Here's a question I have for you. What if you're making a difference that you can't see now? Well, I don't feel like I'm making a difference. Yeah, well, what about the difference that you're making that you don't know about? A man by the last name of Kimball. This was in the, I, I want to say it was the late 1800s, early 1900s. Was teaching a Sunday school class. At the time, Sunday school was a way of keeping rowdy kids out of church. You taught them in Sunday school. He had this 17-year-old boy who came into his class. 17-year-old boy was only there because his grandpa was making him go to church in order to have a job. So he, this 17-year-old shoe salesman who has to go to church because his grandpa who owns a shoe, shoe shop says, you got to go to church. And he goes to the Sunday school. But this man named Kimball, who was teaching the Sunday school class, just got it in his heart that this 17-year-old needed to know God. And instead of expecting that somehow, you know, this kid was going to have to come to God in his Sunday school class, during the week, he went to this kid's shoe shop, and he sat down and told this kid about Jesus, and continued to witness to him until that boy who worked in the shoe shop was saved. And that boy in the shoe shop was D.L. Moody, who would eventually be behind one of the biggest revivals that we've seen. I'm just telling you, what about the difference that you don't see? I don't have time to tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I, I, uh, when I was first married, I, I don't know why I got this wild hair that I wanted to be a mechanic. I, you, you have to understand, 
there is nothing, if you were to know me personally, there is nothing in me that you would go, oh, there's a high aptitude for being a mechanic. Makes no sense. No sense at all. But for some reason, I decided that's what I was going to do. And I, 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 Wendy and I had just gotten married. We traveled to Wyoming because that was where the best automotive school was in the country. And uh, you want to go through a difficult time in life, just get that isolated from your family. We were living in a 400-square-foot apartment in the middle of Wyoming. It was, it was snowy and cold all the time. It was just a depressing... It's not that Wyoming is a depressing place to live, but when we were there, I remember feeling pretty depressed a lot of the time, and, and I was just going through a difficult time. And I remember one of my teachers called me back. It was in engine management systems. We were doing computer work on cars. And he called me back and he said, Jonathan, I just noticed you don't seem quite okay. Are you, are you doing all right? And I just said, no, I'm not doing all right. I said, I'm just having a really rough time. And I just, I, I, don't, know what, I don't know what to tell you. I just, I don't feel like, I, I don't feel like I'm okay. And he said, well, I remember hearing sometime during conversations with you and somebody else that your dad is a pastor. I said, yeah. And he's like, well, then you know that the first thing you should do is get on your knees and ask God to help you. And I said, well, yeah, I, I guess so. The thing that surprised me was our school had a very strict rule. They had rules that looked like the rules that are in public schools, even though this was a private school. That instructors were not to talk to you about anything outside of school, not to talk to you about religion or any of those sorts of things. It was pretty, pretty specific. And he told me, he said, you know I could get fired for having this conversation with you. I said, yeah, actually I do know that. And uh, he said, and yet I watch you and I'm worried about you. And he's like, you know the truth. And you need to get on your knees and ask God for help. I, I would love to talk to that guy. I've tried to chase him down for a long time. His name was Mike. Mike was a guy working two jobs, teaching automotive school at night, or excuse me, teaching automotive school during the day and working out of an automotive shop at night, just trying to provide for his family. He was kind of a rough fella. He he had a he he had a mouth like a sailor, and. Not exactly the person that you would immediately think of as a church guy, but I'll tell you this, he was absolutely pivotal in where I am today. There was a moment where I was sort of falling through the floor, and he was a guy who rem reminded me how important God was supposed to be in my life. But that's an impact he wouldn't know about, would he? I'm asking you, what about the impact that you've had that you don't know that you've had? What about the people's lives that you've changed that you don't know that you've changed? I think it's really important that God told Elijah, look, there's 7,000 people you don't even know about. For some of you, 7,000 would be a shy estimate because you've been a witness in some people's lives who've then been a witness in other people's lives who've then been a witness in other people's lives. And if this thing works like some sort of multi-level marketing thing, you are gonna be really situated when you get to heaven because you've got so many people that have met God through you, you don't even realize it, right? So you are making a difference. Second thing is he said he, needed, he felt like he needed to be alone. He went off by himself. He leaves his servant. Can I tell you what the two problems is? The two problems are with isolating when you're burnt out? Here's the first one. You're going to avoid hearing what you need to hear. And second is you're going to avoid being where you need to be. One of the most important things you can do when you're going through a difficult season is to listen to the people that love you. And to be in places with people that love you. But so often we isolate and we withdraw and we pull ourselves away. Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I'm the only one left. Notice, this is one of his chief complaints to God. I'm by myself. I'm alone. 
I was in the doctor's office not too long ago and uh, was talking to the doctor about um, smoking and how smoking is, is uh, you know, really gone down. The number of people who smoke has really gone down as people become more aware of the risks and so forth. And he said, you know, the thing about smoking, he said, my career started a long time ago. And he said, back when smoking was pretty common. And he said, the thing I was always interested about in smoking is that often, um, sometimes your chief complaint is your choice. People would come in with terrible coughing spells and all of these symptoms that they would come in with, but it was based off of a choice that they were making. And I think what's interesting is that loneliness is both Elijah's chief complaint and his choice. I'm by myself. You know why he was by himself? Because he left his servant and he went off into the wilderness. Sometimes we're burnt out, we feel lonely. You know the reason we feel lonely is because we're not hanging around people that love us and we're making that choice. We're making that choice to be by ourselves. We're making that choice to go out in the wilderness. So we need to be careful about that. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 2, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Now the Bible will also say that we're to carry our own load. And the word load means our portion. That, that God has given each of us some responsibility and we're all to carry our own responsibility. But the word here means a boulder, a crushing weight. And the, what the Bible is saying is sometimes we're under so much weight, we're under so much pressure and under so much difficulty that we need everybody around us to bolster up underneath that weight and that that is part of the Christian life. Part of the Christian life is us gathering around each other and shouldering up underneath that crushing weight that would otherwise take us out. By the way, for whatever it's worth, you should know that one of the very first instructions that God gave Elijah after return the way you came was for him to meet up with Elisha who would be his successor and for a long time the two of them would work together. God understood that there needed to be a connection there. And then finally, I'm finished. Well, this is what I told you I was going to work toward. This is the end of the message. I told you I was going to tell you about the storm and the earthquake and all of that. The Bible says um, that the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. And then the, there was a, 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 an earthquake and then the fire and then the gentle whisper. What is all that about? I... I, I used to listen to preachers preach on this, and they would have symbolism. Well, let me tell you what the storm was. Here's what the storm represented, and here's what the fire represented, and here's what the earthquake represented. You know, I just, I just struggle with that. First of all, you know, if you're Elijah, you're just scared silly the whole time. I don't think God's trying to teach us symbolism while you're scared silly the whole time. I don't think that's what this was about. Can I ask you a question? What's happened every time Elijah's prayed for something? When Elijah prayed for the fire to come down from heaven, what happened? The fire came down from heaven. When Elijah prayed for it to rain again, it rained. When Elijah, when Elijah would, would pray for somebody's life to be restored, they would come back to life. I mean, there's these amazing stories of Elijah's prayer life. So when Elijah asks God to kill him, what do you think he thinks is going to happen? I think he thought God was going to kill him. Because whatever he prays for always happens. So now he asks God to kill him. I think he, was, I think he expected God to kill him. So God says, go stand on the mountain. And Elijah says, this is where it's going to happen. I'm going to go up on the mountain. This is where you're going to kill me. And he sees that tornado when he goes, all right, I'm going to die by tornado. You know, as the Kansans were like, oh, yep, no tornado sirens, nothing. He gets no warning. He sees this thing coming for him. He's like, this is how I'm going to die. When the Bible says God was not in the wind, I think that's the point, is that he expected God to take him out in the tornado, but he never did take him out. God wasn't in the tornado. 
And here comes the earthquake. All right, now this is how it's going to happen. It's going to be this huge earthquake. I'm going to get swallowed alive by these rocks. You know, I'm going to get smushed in there. The rock's going to come out like this. I'm going to fall in and like that, you know. And it never happened because God wasn't in the earthquake. And then there's this massive wildfire. You think, okay, well, God's going to be in this. God's going to take me out. And he didn't die in the fire. And then God comes and talks to him in a still, small voice. What is God trying to say? And what would God say to you if you were telling God, I'm finished? God was telling Elijah, look, buddy, if I wanted to take you out, if I wanted to take you out, there's so many ways I could do it. I could do it like that. And yet, here you are. You know why? Because you're not finished. You may think you're finished, but you're not finished. God's saying, look, if I, it, when it comes time to punch your card, I'll punch your card. But for now, you're still on this planet because I have work for you to do. It's not over until God says it's over. Say, but I, but I don't think I'm accomplishing anything. Well, God can be the judge of that. Well, I don't think I'm being successful. Well, let God be the judge of that. Well, I don't think I'll ever be able to, to live up to past successes. Let God be the judge of that. It's not over until God says it's over. As a matter of fact, I would put it this way. If you have a pulse, you have a purpose. So long as you're living and breathing, God's got work for you to do. Go back the way you came. I don't know who this talk is for. It's kind of an unpolished talk because it's been such a short period of time that God's given me to work on this, and yet I feel like it must be because God has somebody in this room for whom this is important. That you're feeling really low, really burnt out, really spent, and tempted to give up. And I just want to share these three things with you that are the three things I would share with my dad if I could go back in time. First off, whether or not you think you are, you are making a difference. Even if you don't feel like it right now. Even if you can't pinpoint it right now. Even if you can't tell me exactly what the difference is that you're making, you are making a difference. And God knows what the difference is that you're making. Just as God was able to tell Elijah there were 7,000 people that hadn't... Do you notice that God is very careful with that count? He's been keeping count. God's been keeping count of the difference that you're making and the things that you're doing in your life that matter. He knows. So trust him to keep track of the fact that you're making a difference. You are making a difference. And then I want to remind you, you need to be connected. It's not good for us to be alone. So isolating when you feel bad is not the call to make. When you feel like you're going through a tough time, that's when you need to reach out for help. Listen, the time that you most feel like you shouldn't reach out and join a small group at New Spring is probably the time when you should reach out and join a group at New Spring the most. Because the time when we feel that we should isolate, that's usually the time when we need people the most. And then finally, you aren't finished yet. And this is the most important one I have for you. If you think that, well, I've done everything that I'm going to do, I'm ready to call it quits, can I tell you that you have a massively important contribution to make to this planet? If, you, if God hasn't punched your card, there's a reason that you're here. And God has an amazing purpose for you. Hang in there, because God's going to do amazing things through you. I don't know who this was for, but if it was you tonight, you have my prayers that God will restore you and lift you back up and put you back on the path that God will help you go back the way that you came. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful group of people that came here tonight. Father, I pray for those who are feeling burned out, feeling weary and like 
they've spent all of their energy. I pray that you would re-energize them, that you would give them your grace and peace and wisdom and that you would help put them back up on their feet, that you would help stabilize them and help them to know that you are with them and that you are supporting them in these moments. Help them go back the way they came to get back on the right path and to feel that they're back in the center of your will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here tonight. We'll see you later.